Welcome to I'm Absolutely Fine, the podcast from the middle that looks at all the glamour and indignity of being a grown-up. Hello, everybody. I'm Annabelle, and I'm absolutely fine. But I believe that my step counter on my phone is fucking with me. <laughs> I think it's gaslighting me. You know what they say, um, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. So I not do the, the step same. step counters. Even, yes, yes, exactly. Et two step counter. <laughs> I do pretty much the same walk about three or four times a week. Um, I mean, forget new neural pathways. It is the same walk. If I have an extra 10 minutes, I go the long way around the pond. If I'm rushing, I go the short way. And it's between seven and 8,000 steps. Last couple of days, exactly same walk. And I've been feeling quite tired. So I've really had to propel myself round. 6,023 steps, it said yesterday. Which brought my step count down by 1,500 steps for the whole day. And, you know, what's the point? So do you think that it's deliberately kind of like underplaying your steps, like skipping a step here and there in order to kind of push you forward? No, I don't think it's trying to motivate me. I think it's trying to drive me mad and destroy me. Oh, But I love your positive thinking. Also, you must never, ever look at a step counter. No, no, no. Because you're so competitive with yourself and obsessive, you'll go immediately, immediately insane. It's like that David Sedaris, like, short story about him starting and ended up, he ended up doing 30,000... 35,000 steps collecting rubbish around Sussex. Right, and he still does every day he collects rubbish around Sussex to get his steps up but 35,000 that would be me actually so I've got to stop um hi I'm Emily I'm absolutely fine but I am going to a party which is enough to send anybody into a kind of frenzy of uh panic but not only that it, it actually starts at 8 30 which is a, a sort of crime I criminal think. Act. <laughs> and also everybody I've ever met practically is going to be there so not only will I be like only half an hour from my bedtime, but also in a social situation full of people that I haven't seen for, like, you know, pandemic reasons. And And also for human reasons. And also because you inevitably (laughs) won't like all of them that much. You're going to be a complete swivel-eyed loon at that party. I am so... And I'm going to be there to witness it. Oh, my God, yes, you're going to be there too. That's a good thing. We can just sit in the corner and talk, which is really not the point, given we're going on holiday together the next week. Like psychopaths. Yes, exactly. So here we are, psychopaths. Anyway, I'm super stressed about it, which, let's face it, we all feel stressed, right? We feel dreadful and we've done the yoga and we've lit a candle and we had a bath and in Annabelle's case fallen asleep in it which still actually makes me so panicky for like 45 minutes no 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 the thought of you being one of those sort of like rock stars who does in the bath I can't bear it anyway I know I'm still and here it's, and it's only because of insomnia as opposed to kind of terrible crack you yeah, trying to put, <laughs> trying to stay awake oh yeah. you know. anyway the general panic but our next guest has some solutions and She is at the front line of serious, heartbreaking stress. Dr. Sam Akbar is a clinical psychologist who treats refugees with post-traumatic stress disorder. She works with survivors of torture, war or sexual violence, and she helped train psychologists to treat survivors and families of the Grenfell fire. But Sam is seeking to apply those hard-earned skills to our everyday flavours of stress. So she's written a guide to being more resilient. It's called stress-zillient. And, you know, we love a pun, we love a a conjoined (laughs) word, we love all that stuff. But actually, the book is excellent. Sam, how are you? Hi, I'm uh, Dr. Sam Atgarn. I'm absolutely fine. But I was lying in bed with my daughter, who's 10, reading her story last night. And she was looking at me really intently. And I thought, 
oh, this is a moment of real love. This is, you know, mother, daughter. And she kept looking at me and I thought, she really loves me. And she leaned forward and she said, I can't believe you've been going around with that chin hair all day. <laughs> she, I knew it was going to be a beard. She then pulled it out, oh. looked at me, and just like Marlon Brando in Apocalypse Now, she said, the horror. <laughs> <laughs> Why do we never notice them till they're waving in the breeze? Well, I didn't ever think I had chin hairs. A moustache, I'm totally, everyone knows that about me. But I didn't think <laughs> I had this. And it was so brutal. It was so harsh. I just thought, and because I thought it was a moment of deep love and connection. <laughs> I got into um, a friend of mine's car the other day. She's a very splashy type, not at all like me. She drives a Porsche. And I looked down in the little well, you know, where you're meant to put drinks, paratweezers. <laughs> you know, net, always within, always within arm's reach, right? There comes a point. I panic if I leave the house without tweezers at this point. I have to say the other day I was called out by a small member of my community uh, for my a nose hair, which was nice. really oh. Yes. And, uh, and I said, I know I can't find the tweezers. And she was like, I've got them. And I was like, why have you got them? You don't need them. I need them. I oh, need the tweezers. She, she, I find, yeah, she'll run and get it and, and pull, it, pull it out <laughs> with her teeth. Well, it's about oh, well, having a sort of small, spiteful, at-home beautician. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> you know, sort of upsetting yet useful. <laughs> it is. It is. I mean, this is quite a good, um, quite a good segue into the kind of disjunct between what we think is of moments of serious sort of love and connection, which are then exposed to be kind of you know brutal moments, and how how do we how do we go through life being resilient to these uh, to these shifts? Yes. Well, I think when children do this to you, it's basically stop their pocket money, punish them in some way, <laughs> uh, get your revenge. I say, and obviously my revenge is her genetic heritage which is coming her way is going to be much furrier than mine so she can laugh all she likes now she'll be laughing on the other side of her bearded face won't she? <laughs> exactly so, can i just ask you because you know we swim in stress yeah. we, you know stress is our frenemy stress is always there and you know when we're not feeling stress we we worry that we're not feeling stressed but how do we square that with the idea that there are people everywhere in the world and we know it's, it's very, we have a very heightened sense of this at, at the moment, that are experiencing extreme trauma, yeah. um, you, know, it, you know, terrible, appalling, unthinkable things. And yet, how, how do we not loathe ourselves and feel terrible guilt about being worried about, you know, something small yet insidious to us? Look, I'm not going to say that the kind of stress of trauma in torture is the same as kind of our everyday stress. However, I do think, I'm not sure how helpful comparative stress is. So by that same token, I could say, well, I'm treating someone who's tortured, but he's only been tortured for a year versus this person who's been tortured for five years. Why is that a helpful distinction to make? You might not be going through the same kinds of stresses, but you're still experiencing things in your everyday life that are difficult. And I want to speak to that because I think there's still things that don't have to be extreme stress or extreme things that I hear that you find hard in your life, that you need to know some better ways to negotiate. On top of that, the other thing I would say is you are much more likely to do something to 
maybe contribute to alleviating some of that enormous stress in the world if we're talking about refugees or helping or volunteering or taking in a refugee or um, doing something useful if you are in a better place. Yeah, yeah, so that's it's a very partly, good way to look at it. Yeah, so it's partly I wrote the book, and one of the things I say, and it's about how not only you you relate to yourself, but how you relate to other people, and how you want to treat yourself, other people, and the world around you. So yes. maybe frame it in that way rather than, oh, you know, my car's broken down and I can't get to work, and oh, but why am I worrying about it? Yes, you you can take that, but the fact is we all do have stresses whether you're caring for a parent with alzheimer's you're worrying about money you don't know what the security of your job is maybe your kids being bullied at school like these are things that make life really hard mm. i mean the, your book i should say has uh, has so much going for it the first thing is it's very short like me <laughs> because uh, yeah. has time but packed <laughs> with incredibly useful humane, um, doable, practical exercises also and like perspectives. <laughs> there you go. Now, the, I, I suppose the thought that maybe was the heartbeat of the book for me, and it will be different for everybody, yeah. was this idea that what we tend to think is, what can I do to stop feeling this way? And what would happen if we could, you know, for a fuller life, if mm. we could convert that to what am I willing to feel in order to live the kind of life yeah. that I want to live? Yeah, I really like that idea. And I must say, you know, I wasn't, I didn't come out of the womb a psychologist, right? I'm quite emotionally inept in my own way. And so this has all been my learning. This is stuff I use on myself. Mm. And uh, I was, a journalist interviewed me the other day uh, for a Sunday, the Sunday Times piece and said, do you get high on your own supply? And I thought, yes, I absolutely <laughs> do get high on my, I loved that. And that is, Annabelle, that is a key thing that I have come to realise. It's not about trying to get rid of it. It's what what difficult feelings am I willing to make room for in order to live the life I want? And that, it's so simple, but it's actually a really dramatic pivot in your life if you can do that, because it totally changes your relationship with your emotions. I am not... As you know, the job I do, I hear really, really awful stuff. I'm not about getting rid of feeling the humanity I feel for people, you know, the kind of upset I feel for people. I'm not thinking about how do I get rid of that out myself. Actually, I'm thinking about how can I make room for that so I do the best job I can. And the same is true in all our relationships with people. Nothing is ever... I mean, who sold us this lie that I grew up with thinking it was all going to be easy? I feel very calmed. But, you know, we will always have these difficult moments where we have to ask ourselves, what am I willing to make room for? Because it isn't just happy feels all the time. Oh, that it were... But actually, there's some really difficult emotions. Yeah, no, I think the happiness trap is actually a trap. It's like, all I want to do is be happy. Well, I mean, you know, you can't, and therefore you will spend your life, you know, hitting your head against a brick wall, metaphorically. Because there's propaganda, isn't there, that happiness is the natural yeah. human state. Yeah, yes. that we should... And if you're not happy, then you're doing it wrong. Yeah. And, and, and people do lean towards optimism and happiness and whatever you know generally you notice that now we're 47 you do you get you I think see what that happens but... though as you move through your 30s and 40s you stop you're rolling around in poetic misery and you think right I'm going to pull myself together <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to achieve this happiness because it's about time so then I think a lot what a lot of us do which you talk about in your book you call it 
the cage, mm-hmm. which is change, avoid, get rid, eliminate. And that's not about feeling more. That's about blocking things out, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Yeah. And that, I think, is... I think you used a beach ball in a swimming pool. Yeah, so this kind of yes. idea that you can, you know, if, if you're in a, in a pool and you've got a, a beach ball and you're pushing it under the water, you have to expend a lot of energy to keep it there. And whilst you're doing that, you are not at the beach cabana with your friends having cocktails. You're just trying to get rid of all this stuff. And the second you you kind of let go of it, it kind of bursts forth into your face. Breaks your nose. Breaks your nose. As I say, you know, you you pretend you meant it to do that anyway. And you were just larking about in the pool being cool. But actually, what if instead it just floated about with you in your pool and you got on with other stuff like working on your tan or whatever is important at that moment or picked it up and whacked it in someone else's face (laughs) no Emily very very bad okay we need a a session you need a session with me on your own I think Um, but can you talk to us a little bit about the idea of um, clean pain and dirty pain oh I loved that yeah so this is another one I really like which is Um, And again, this has been all my own learning because I've been all about, you know, my twins. Why am I not happy all of the time? Uh, What a horrible shock to discover the human state is not given over to this. But this idea of clean paint. So if you are a human being who cares about anything, who cares about people, cares about the world, cares about others, care about yourself, you are going to feel emotional pain because inevitably you will lose someone you care about in your life. You will experience some loss or some grief in some way, the end of a relationship, the loss of a job, maybe even the loss of your health. You will experience something that will really hit you in your to the core. And that emotion is what we would call clean pain. It is the emotional pain that you experience if you are a person who feels anything. The problem is not that original pain, the clean pain. The problem is, is when you start to deal with that inevitable pain in an unhelpful way. So you push it away. You maybe avoid relationships. Maybe you eat too much. Maybe you drink too much. Maybe you don't look after yourself. Maybe you become very unkind to others as a way of coping. Now you've got a, that's dirty pain because now you've got a whole set of different problems. Let's say you drink too much to get rid of the original clean pain. Now you've got a whole different set of problems related to drinking too much in relation to the original pain. So kind of clean pain is inevitable pain. Dirty pain is optional because they are, Mm. it's it's sort of unhelpful ways of coping that lead to a separate set of problems. I mean, really, you know, I I suppose, you know, one of the big messages is, but you, you do this very gently and you give us tools is feel your feelings Mm. if you can feel your feelings then you know everything will be more manageable yeah and I think that this is something we just don't learn to do certainly of our generation because we think there's something wrong with us who are feeling sad or ashamed or incredibly anxious particularly if nothing that bad is happening Mm -hmm. and and completely right and we never learn that actually these are all normal things. Oh my God, if I could go back and tell myself some stuff when I was a teenager, wouldn't you go back and say, it's normal to feel like this? It's normal to feel really upset if there's rejection or difficulty 
This is how your body responds. This is how your mind responds. You, there's nothing wrong with you. You are a normal human being who feels emotions. But you're absolutely right, Annabelle, in the sense that we don't learn about these things. And we think it should all be positive. Right. And that's incredibly unhelpful in the long run. Yeah, we're bombarded. And what I, yeah. you know, again, I know I love so much about your book, but particularly love your hostility towards motivational messages, which I love my obviously like affirmations. It's like, fine, if that works for you, you got this. But most of the time we don't got this. So fuck off with your motivational poster. Totally. And, you know, and, and actually, you know, that yes, exactly. Really, it should be, you know, it should be, you don't got this and you should look at that to normalise the fact that you feel and, you like, know, yeah. like your world is falling apart. Completely. And look, the truth is, it's fine to have your motivational messages sometimes. That works for you. Okay. I'm not about kind of like getting rid of what works for people, but I'm just saying here are some alternative ways that might work even better to, if you're willing to try them out. I'm not judging or kind of pointing a finger or I don't want to do that's not my thing at all I don't want to do that I'm just saying here are some ideas come and hang out in this book if you think you might like them and try them out and yeah you know you can tell yourself your affirmations and I'm great and sometimes that works but often it doesn't and it doesn't just acknowledge that sometimes you don't got this as you say and that's okay yes Mm. it's okay to say I don't got this today and I'm struggling. Well, I mean, I, yes, but probably better than okay, because um, can you talk to us a little bit about the idea of creating some space between us and our thoughts and, and, and what you talk about in your book, which is active noticing? Yeah. So um, I love this idea that you can have space between you, the thinker, and the thought. And I remember when I first kind of uh, learned about this idea that we, we aren't just our thoughts, like there is a distance, we can observe them, there's a distance for them. I was on a plane to Trinidad and I was, it was my last uh, little uh, holiday before I had my daughter and I was pregnant. And I, start, I was reading this book on the plane. I was like, what? I'm not the sum of my thoughts? And I, I, I felt like sort of, I was... I was sort of looking around me above the seats thinking, do you people all know this? <laughs> like, forget the safety message. I have something I need to say. Get me on the PA. And so it's this, you know, I, and I really remember that. I was sort of doing this. I was looking around like a meerkat, a uh, very short meerkat over the seats, um, thinking, I need to tell Who you. Who can I tell? Who can I tell? Because obviously my husband was not interested. Um, and it's this idea that... You can have a thought, uh, and uh, but not buy into it. So you can observe it as an event, but you don't have so to... So thoughts go- are not commandments, you Yes, say, you? absolutely. They are not commandments given to you on a mountainside that you have to follow. And I honestly used to think this was true, that whatever came into my head, I had to respond to. Yeah. And the knowledge that I could observe that thought... Thank my mind for having it. Thanks so much. I know you're trying to help me out with this, but actually I'm okay. 
was revelation. But those thoughts feel almost like, you almost feel like you're being parented by them badly. Yes. You know, that they, 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 they come into you have these automatic thoughts and they have their own kind of noxious authority, don't they? So unless you, you, you stop and take note, you will just obey. You will just buy into them. Because you're used to doing that, aren't you? You're used to listening to it and you feel like they feel very compelling because they are often about your worst fears about yourself, their harsh judgments, they come with memories attached to them, they come with images attached to them, they are very, very potent. This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Why not try a hobby, they say. Everybody needs to find purpose, they say. If only we had enough time, we say. But even if we did have an extra hour in the day, what on earth would we do with it? A lot of us wish we had more time, but time for what? One of the things that I have found really useful about therapy is in unpacking what's important to me now. Because what I wanted at 20 is very different to what I want now at 49. But sometimes in the rush hour of life, we can get stuck in an old template. Therapy can give you the space to talk things through, to reimagine what matters to you and how to prioritise it. So if you need some clarity and are thinking of starting therapy, why not look at BetterHelp? It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise. And our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash midult. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com slash midult. BetterHelp. Because sometimes the smartest thing to do is acknowledge that we are not, in fact, absolutely fine. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And I mean, it definitely when I've had, you know, periods of poor mental health, you know, the, the sort of intrusive thoughts that what my therapist called the lizard brain. Yes. You know, pulling, yeah. hooking down those, those. And I, I agree, it was a revelation to me that the thoughts were not my sort of deep, dark subconscious, like the truth about me. They were just thoughts and that you they could go and you could actually say exactly like you said, you know, thank you. Can you send me something more useful or I'm just not into that today? Yeah. Thank you or whatever. Because, you know, when I started having really bad panic attacks uh, eight years ago or however long mm. it is now, the, the sort of overarching thought was that, you know, I'm a terrible mother. I'm a terrible mother. I'm a terrible mother. I just kept going, 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 wouldn't stop. And um, and I had found no, I found, I because I was so depleted in every other area, I was unable to kind of fight this overall. And, you know, once you let go of that or replace it with a different thing, and it couldn't be replaced with, I am a good mother, because that felt like, yeah. you know, those, those switches are not so yes. obvious, one would think. But yeah, the idea that you can actually think things that are not actually... You know, like I said, the truth, the dark truth about yourself is a is a was a revelation. I really find it helpful to think of it like this. So you have you know tens of thousands of thoughts a day. Imagine that your brain prints out those 
10, 20 thousand thoughts you have. Yet what are we paying attention to? We're looking for the ones that grab our attention in the biggest font are the ones that I'm a bad mother, I'm a failure, I'm useless. And that's what we're hooked into. But actually, why can we not treat them like I need to stop in Tesco's on the way home and buy apricots or whatever it is, you know, like that is not a thought that upsets me deeply and I can just observe it. Okay, I need to do that. But why can't I treat all my thoughts in the same way? But also, I suppose what we have to understand is that thoughts are not feelings and feelings are not thoughts. Because if we want to make room Mm. for the painful feelings, we don't need to accommodate the painful thoughts in the same way. Is that correct? Yes. So it's a question of learning, I suppose, to make thought, make room for those difficult feelings. So kind of... And imagery is really nice here, this idea that you can kind of expand around it. You can make room for everything you feel. I really like this idea of if you think of yourself as the sky, right, you're that constant and the weather is your emotions. And sometimes the weather is a tornado and sometimes the weather is beautiful and sometimes it's a bit rainy. But you can make room for all of that and it all changes, no feeling and is also final. the weather never hurts the sky does it and the weather can't hurt the sky the it can be the worst storm there's a part of you that can accommodate all of that i find that also really liberating so that's one thing about about feelings and the idea behind thoughts is you can diffuse and stand back from that thoughts and see whether buying into a thought is useful for you or not and by useful i mean does it help you live a life in line with your values If I buy into I'm a bad mother or I'm a failure or I'm so fat and awful or whatever it is, does that help me live the kind of life I want to live? Is that helping me be the kind of person I want to be? Whether it's true or not, that's the other thing. Doesn't matter whether those thoughts are true or not. We're not about that in this work. We're about trying to stand back and then do the useful thing. Whatever that might be. I, I like I like this exercise when you talk about letting the thoughts really sink, letting the judgment that the thought is uh, stimulating really really sink its fangs into you, and and then getting to the point where you're saying, okay, so I am a fraud. I'm having the thought that I'm yeah. a fraud. I am noticing that I'm having the thought that I'm a fraud through little steps yeah. that you guide us through. We just create some distance, some so you can breathe yeah, again. And you know, if someone is listening to to this now, and this on their way to work, you can try and get a really, a really harsh self-judgment into your mind. So it might be, I'm a failure, I'm a loser, I'm a bad mum, I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm not doing what I should be doing in life, really letting it... All the really old-fashioned womany stuff. I'm fat, I'm, fat, I'm ugly. I'm ugly, you know... Um, I have a beard. I have a beard, <laughs> all of which might be true. Um, but, you know, that kind of judgment about yourself. Really let it sink into you, really bring it up in your mind for a few seconds. And then... You know, I, I'm a I'm a failure is my my big one. I don't care how many books I publish or whatever it looks like. I will I'll believe that at times I will really buy into that. Um, and objectively, you could say that I've done things and, and I'm not a failure, but I know my mind will come up with that. So I'm a failure. So when I notice that thought or if you're listening, you know, while we're doing this then bring up that thought. But it, now take a, a different tack and just say, I'm noticing I'm having a thought, I'm a failure, yeah. That's just the distance you get. I'm just noticing there's a thought there, I'm a failure. 
And immediately you've got a bit of distance between yourself and that thought. What does it feel like when you have a bit of space? Feels to me like you can breathe a little bit. And when you've got that space, oh my word, you can do something so much more useful with yourself than buying into that. Mm, yeah it's sort of like getting rid of of psychological smog in that way yeah oh yeah i mean there's so lots of good breathing exercises as well in your book we're all incredibly useful or i've been like which was the one that you really liked i really liked so um when i first went into therapy and i i've told people listening to the podcast before so uh, i was told about the oxygen mask which i i I can't my brain just it yeah. can't do it. It doesn't like it. It just rejects it. The yeah. idea is that, you know, you're told to put your oxygen mask on before other people on a plane. And emotionally, yeah. if you look after yourself, um, then you'll be able to look after the people you love better. But Emily can't factor in the idea that she would look after herself first. Yeah, it is, it's impossible. But there is an exercise, and you, you mentioned the oxygen mask yeah. when talking about the exercise, where you breathe in compassion for yourself and then you breathe out compassion for the other person. So... For me, that made perfect sense that I can take the breath in for myself. I can own that breath for me, me first. There I am breathing in. And then when I exhale, I exhale, I exhale my love, my compassion for the person in front of me, metaphorically or literally. Who's being an arsehole. <laughs> metaphorically or literally. <laughs> and and uh, it really worked this weekend. And I oh, thought, great. my gosh. Metaphorically like, or literally. Yes, exactly. <laughs> However you want to read it. No, Use it, it at really your party. Very powerful. <laughs> yes. I'm going to be like, I'm talking to you. I'm breathing in. Sorry about the, the gush of air coming back at you. It's the compassion. No, but it was, it was, it's a really simple way of, because I think that, you know, we can do lots of work on ourselves and find mm. ourselves in a good place. And then we go out into the world and then what comes back at us might not be. So for me, the idea of because I want to be, you know, we're talking about values. I want to be someone who is compassionate for someone else. But when I I also want to be able to look after myself, too. And that's where I struggle. And I think it's interesting. It was a very interesting exercise. There are I mean, the book is packed with with good, useful exercises. Well, let's talk about values. Yes, because we haven't yet. And they're in here and you have a whole list. I mean, many, many values. And this is really about identifying, I think, Sam. Yeah. Tell me if I'm wrong. I may be. You know, the person that you want to be and how you want to live your life. And then you have, then you can aim for something rather than just swimming around in your own emotional mess. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the sort of key thing that it's quite, it's quite a sort of profound thing to ask yourself. Not what do I, you know, kind of what job do I want to do? What sort of house do I want to live in? Or, you know, where, what what colours do I want to paint my walls? Or, you know, whatever, all, you know, very important things. But nonetheless, you're asking yourself, what kind of person do I want to be? What do I want to stand for in this life? How do I want to treat myself and others and the world? And I think that, you know, I think that is quite profound. And they aren't things we ask ourselves very often. And that's the stuff I think that's really helpful to guide you. That's the reason that you make room for all the difficult stuff is because it's in line with what matters to you. Mm. I mean, your your the, the list that you provide ranges from sort of connection to you know knowledge to uh, spirituality to you know leadership. Yeah, it's you know it, it really it's 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 a it's it's, it's you know it's it's wide open water. Yeah, and it, you can have hundreds of values, right? I'm just giving you some pointers in the book as a kind of jumping off point, but it's 
again, there's something really nice about thinking about how do I want to be? What's important to me? And also looking back on those moments in your life when you felt you were your authentic self. Now, that's not even always easy work because there might you might think, I felt like that then and I have moved really far away from that now. But, you know, so and that's where you need to make room for all the difficult feelings that's going to come up with that, the difficult thoughts. But actually to get back, if you want to, to get back in touch with that is a really powerful exercise to guide you. Thinking about, well, we aren't here on this earth for that long. How do I want to live my life? There was a very, uh, there's another interesting bit in the book where you get the list of the most deathbed yes. regrets basically the five most from the, from a woman who worked in you know care homes yeah. for all of her career and she's like these are the five things I heard and they're all they're never I wish I'd spent more time in the office or no. whatever they're all they're about friendship and they're about actually I wish I'd been my true you self s- I wish yes. I had said I wish I had done the things that I wanted to do and I mm. think that you know that doesn't mean that we create a kind of you know uh, uh, a kind of narcissistic, you know, identity where we could just go and do things that satisfy us and that make us happy. But it is about the idea of how much we hide our true selves in order to conform or to achieve what it is that we think that we want to get, but in a very materialistic way. I really, the, the phrase that jumped out for me was the idea of being psychologically prosperous. <laughs> because I've spent so much of my life trying to be psychologically safe. Yeah. And they are not the same yes. thing because yes. one means that everything is open to you and the other means that very few things are absolutely so it's that idea of flexibility and being prosperous is that you can ride difficult things and thrive mm. and that that thriving all uh, that being psychologically prosperous isn't about not feeling it isn't about being happy all the time it's about living a full life in the true sense of the word with all the emotions that life brings you Mm. and flourishing and flourishing yeah absolutely flourishing in the present which leads me to the fact that (laughs) present is a very tricky situation we were discussing this this morning because this is one of the things we both highlighted (laughs) i mean yes we both we both looked at the was it was it a harvard business school study i'm not sure it was it was a a very authoritative study that said 40 percent of us are generally worrying about things that are not happening now haven't happened have already happened or will never happen yeah so it's it's hard to understand how to just be here and also so that we're told is, meditation 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 but yeah really? uh, well so well what I would say about that is so that might have well have been written about me I'm nearly always worrying about something that might happen some event that has happened you know it, I, it's a struggle for me and I just want to and the reason I, I I'm open about that is I think lots of people think oh well you know she's a psychologist she's not you know she doesn't Feel those things. Well, You're the I'm, maddest of the lots. I am completely <laughs> off my nuts. Yes, you know, and oh my gosh, you know, I am struggling like you're struggling. Um, I think so. Meditation. I would draw a distinction, Annabelle, between meditation and mindfulness. And so, mindfulness does really help. But it's a shame it's been so sort of it's been sort of put on oh, so I much know. soap, isn't I it? I know, and it's really on. Un- yes, it is. But there are ways of being mindful, and and you could just say, "I'm just training myself to be in the present moment." You don't have to 
get up at five o'clock and make time for yourself and sit on a rock and look if you want to do that yes if you get up at five o'clock and make make time for yourself you're losing crucial panicking time (laughs) i mean when are you going to find time to catastrophize if not that's your slot that's that's my slot yeah you know and, and you know or i'm just going to lie in bed and think about oh i've got two hours before i've got to get up you know I am not getting up at five o'clock for anyone. So um, mindfulness, though, if you just reframe it as a way of being in the present moment and just noticing the present moment as it is. There are lots of exercises in the book that are things you can do on the go. Right. You can do mindfulness in the queue, uh, you know, at a taxi rank. You can do mindfulness on the tube. You can do mindfulness at the school gate. There are ways of doing it on the go and that don't have to be an enormous commitment. But what you're doing is gradually training that in yourself. That's it's really a brilliant helpful. way to shut down a conversation. You know, to, you know the, the party. I'm, I'm sorry, sorry, I'm just, just practicing I'm, my I'm mindfulness. I'm just doing some mindfulness. Yes. But I think no that, one will ever speak no, to you again. Well, that's, yes, exactly. There you go. Win, win, win. But I think the other thing that's, that's such a kind of a false advertising for like meditation and mindfulness is the idea that you have to empty your head. And yes. that is why people 100%. are so immediately yeah. defeated by yeah. it. And it's not yeah. about that at all. It is literally about saying, I am noticing the trees. I am noticing this. I'm noticing myself thinking about the trees. It is, that's what yes. it is, isn't it? Can you it's, give us a little beginner's yes. go on, go on, go on. exercise? That doesn't feel like a, and now f- empty your brain and then everyone starts to cry. Okay. A simple one I like for focus is, so I, when I, you might find this helpful as writers, I sitting about writing and I begin to think about the fact that uh, my agent will be cross with me soon. What I say to the publishers haven't done anything. Oh my God, that window's so filthy. Shall I go and clean it? Uh, oh, I'm a bit hungry actually now. Oh, what shall I eat? Uh, I don't know if that speaks to you at all. Um, so I find some problems with concentration and focus. So mindfulness can be very good about coming back to that moment. So one thing I find really helpful, I really like, is it's called 54321. I'm doing the movements with my hands badly. <laughs> um, and uh, it's fun. So you just start by telling yourself five things I can see around me. And I name them in my head. I don't go, oh, I can see five things. I say, I can see the lamp. I can see the pen on my book. I can see a glass of water. Then um, four things I can hear. Three things I can smell, uh, two things I can touch, and one thing I can taste, right? And just, you can do that anywhere, right? And it can just bring you back to the present moment. And I find that quite helpful when I'm in a massive spiral of rumination, as is my Mm. main hobby. Um, Mm. And it just brings me back and sort of takes me out of my head for Mm. a little bit. And I I find that really helpful. So that is a mindfulness. It doesn't have to be. You might not like breathing. You know, some people love it, some people don't. So I've tried to give different ways of of using mindfulness. You can mindfully listen to music. You can mindfully eat. You can do it for 30 seconds. It doesn't have to be a great commitment. The main thing is you just start bringing a little bit of this into your life and it will grow from there. And yeah. you're absolutely right, Emily. I think the key thing is it's not about, oh, my God, no wonder people give up. You can't empty your mind. That's not how minds work. It doesn't speak to what the how we're built. The lizard brain doesn't do that. Or even the um, 
bit of our brain called the prefrontal cortex, which is all about being able to think in advance about things. It makes us uniquely human. That's not going to stop its work because you want it to. And the other thing, it's not about relaxation. Like people always yeah. think, oh, you know, I'll do some other But I didn't feel relaxed at the end. You may not. It's not about mm. that. It's about just bringing your attention to what is here now and thinking, noticing it as it is. And then that from that place, you can think about doing something more useful that's in line with your values. Ah. Mm. <sighs> And I think, you know, the idea of mindfulness and some some finding a way to mindfully show yourself a bit of compassion because we yeah. beat the shit out of ourselves. Yeah. It's potentially really transformative in terms of your relationships, in terms of your work, in terms of, uh, you know, just opening some doors for yourself. Because certainly me, with, with my anxiety, I find myself, I've backed myself into a corner and it's really mm. cold and it's very dark and it's very scary. Mm. And everything is telling me that I can't get out. Yeah. Um, so, so you know, a lot of this is about puffing some air through the micro trauma that we just deliver to ourselves, even if we are, you know, completely, you know, lucky enough to be sitting here in a house with a leaking kitchen rather than in some terrible situation. Yeah, and I, I also really like the idea that we sort of to take rest seriously, like. The, there's a brilliant anecdote, to, well, not anecdote, because obviously you didn't actually interview an antelope, but you were talking about what mm. happened to a wild hand. How do you know? Don't, don't judge right, my journalist I'm making skills. That, I'm, making, <laughs> I'm making that assumption. But the idea that, you know, an, an antelope that's just been attacked by a lion goes to the watering hole and kind of, you know, takes a pause, thinks, oh my God, whatever, but doesn't then immediately kind of turn to the next antelope next to it and go, oh my God, did you see that? I can't believe it. Do you think the lion's going to come back? Like, you know, it's a sort of, you know... Or does do the you, lion think I'm a dick? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Or did the lion not like what I was wearing? What's the deal? Yeah. Or because the lion thinks I'm fat. I mean, you know, it's like a sort of endless cycle. The, the antelope is very focused on, you know, resting after, you know... A, a trauma. A, a, a trauma. And, you know, I'm, I'm not saying we're sort of you know, dealing with trauma all the time. But the idea that, you know, the idea that we do not allow ourselves to rest, that we do not allow ourselves the idea of space and breathing, that we do not allow ourselves to feel all our feelings, you know, of course it's going to create this sort of awful, vicious bottleneck. But it's funny, isn't it, the idea that you can, if you feel all the difficult feelings, what you're potentially going to end up with is some peace. Yes. You know, if you hear, if you listen to the noise, you could end up with some quiet. Yes. And I think, you know, and so, you know, this brilliant book, Stress Stress Resilient by Dr. Sam Akbar, how to beat stress and build resilience, but also how to live a fuller life, how to live the life that you desperately want, you know, steps towards that. Absolutely. And as I say in the book, I really, it's, I hope it's more than just techniques. I hope it gives people hope that you can do something differently. And I I've done it for myself. I've helped lots of other people do it. It does give you so much more choice and freedom about how you live your life. And the other thing I really, really wanted for it was that, as you say, it was it was something you could carry about in your pocket. It was like having a psychologist in your pocket, but not in a creepy wrong way. In a, in a good, helpful way, but that you could, it would be like a little friend you would carry around and would be battered in your handbag, but you could pull it out in the loo at work when you are absolutely losing it and think, I can do something. Mm-hmm. Well, here's to that. And thank you so much for coming to see us. Um, you're an inspiration. Yeah, absolutely. Thank, thank you, you so much, much Sam. Thank you so much for having me. 
You've been listening to Annabelle Rifkin and Emily McMeekin of The Midalt. Our book, I'm Absolutely Fine, is out now. If you like what you hear, please rate, review and subscribe. 